ultimately it's not out there, it's in here. And that we, the more that we learn our in here direct connection to the source, then we're not, we're a lot less likely to exploit and use other people for anything because we're not trying to get anything from out there. You know, we can ask for love, but we don't demand it because we're feeling it. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. You'll note that one of the big themes on this show, the recurring strains, is the revival of the lost ecstatic traditions in cultures worldwide. Another is the work of bridging that must happen for us to collaborate as a planet, which I bet that many, if not most of you, dismissed completely automatically, like I did, when I heard it coming out of my own mouth. And yet, this is very likely what we need, an understanding of the ways we are estranged, sometimes especially by those tools that connect us. I have a lot of old recordings I am finally getting around to, and this chalk with Bill Pfeiffer is one of them. It being old means that I both spoke too much and recorded myself too quietly, so I will keep this intro short and let you get straight to the wisdom oozing out of every sentence that Bill Pfeiffer utters. But first, let me thank new Patreon supporters Thomas Wheat, DW, and Brandon McGinnity, as well as uh, Antu Pakanen for editing their pledge up. That brings me just a little closer to the goal of 200 patrons I have for this podcast. I'm taking on a whole bunch of fun new responsibilities in anticipation of this goal to make the community that has grown up around this show even more fun to participate in. And one of those is a sci-fi book club. Well, I guess we haven't decided that every single book will be sci-fi, but the first one is It's Blind Sight by Peter Watts. And if you sign up by the end of December... Then you get to participate in the video call, or it might be possibly calls, that we have about this book in January, um, at-length discussions about the themes in one of the richest and most edgy and wonderful science fiction novels that I have read in a long time. It was uh, recommended to me by Eric Davis, who most of you know is an utterly amazing badass with impeccable taste if you don't believe me listen to episode 99 anyway yeah and i am also going to publish a special highlight reel of my favorite excerpts from some of my favorite episodes of the first hundred of this show for patreon supporters here as a holiday gift to everyone who has been thrown in two or five or whatever dollars a month. It's awesome and it helps a lot. Most importantly, it helps me make time to do fun things with you like share constant cool stuff into the amazing discussion that is the Free Public Future Fossils Facebook group. It's like over 1,600 people in there. It's amazing. You guys are wonderful. Anyway patreon.com slash michael garfield go there enjoy all the free stuff i've posted there 
when I get a notification that someone new is supporting the show, it automatically improves my day like 5%, as does seeing the number of Apple Podcast reviews go up. Uh, That is very cool. Y'all are wonderful. What am I to do with myself? My fortune is just extraordinary. (sighs) Okay. Here's Bill Pfeiffer. Enjoy, and I'll see you next week. Bill Pfeiffer, welcome on board to Future Fossils. Thank you for injecting yourself into the archives. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about your work in restoring to people a sense of, I mean, perhaps the word is not m- participation mystique, but a sense of their place, their role, their Im- embeddedness maybe in nature, connection to their own bodies and their, their kind of cultural inheritance. How did you become preoccupied with this work? <laughs> Great question. I've been at this for a while and it's uh, an evolution and I had a, like I think many of us who are passionate about spiritual evolution, I had a mystical experience in when I was 26 years old and of all places a massive peace demonstration. It was the second special session for nuclear disarmament at the UN on June 12, 1982, and a million people came together to basically say we don't want to have we don't want to get into a a nuclear war with the then Soviet Union and I had been kind of brought up on Vietnam war demonstrations and which were incredibly violent and antagonistic and hateful and this was a million people where there wasn't one arrest and it was the most um, yeah, it was like Gandhi has a phrase called Satyagraya, which is the truth force or the soul force. And I felt like I was part of humanity involve, evolving. Um, and it felt inevitable at the time, evolving in a good way with planet Earth. And that just, you know, I was drinking too much at the time and I ha- I was a little bit... Um, you know, life was a little bit meaningless and narrow. And after that demonstration, I just, you know, I was never the same. And I felt like I could make a difference, like you can make a difference in how things play out here on planet Earth. And what were you doing when you got involved with that? Like, how were you occupying yourself? What did you think you were here to do? I I was a, I was a, a young cabinet maker. I had finished my apprenticeship. I was doing woodworking in New York City. And uh, I had recently married. And, and I think, you know, my worldview was like, how do I take care of myself? You know, just making sure the bills are paid. And, you know, what's in my own personal domain. And, and that, that has not uh, ceased to be important. It's just not the only thing. And I think that that's where I got, blo- that's where I kind of got blown away. I, this much, much larger 
picture that we humans are involved in. And uh, as I said, I've never been the same since. That was a while ago. So there's a couple things in there, and I kind of want to unpack that a little and then hand it back to you and let you take it whichever way you want, which is one piece of this is uh, I know that you've done a considerable amount of work with Native American communities and elders. And I just read recently, I think I have some, if I remember correctly, I think I have some Blackfoot in my, in my distant ancestry. And I remember reading that Maslow's hierarchy of needs was actually, uh, it turns out, based on the Blackfoot teepee of personal realization and that what you know that this this self-actualization which represents the sort of apex of maslow's hierarchy is actually the foundation it's the ground floor of the native american version of this and that from there it expands beyond personal concerns into how you uh, belong within a community how that actualized self actually steps into the world, which is a lot, again, like the ox herding pictures of of Zen and how the the final uh, pictures in this sequence that describe enlightenment through the metaphor of uh, an ox herder and his cattle, that this sequence ends with him taking the cattle, which present his enlightenment back into the marketplace. And so there's something about the complementarity i guess of discovering your relationship to nature through political action in a dense urban center uh, about a an international diplomatic issue that's highly technological that's uh ultimately about a sort of an existential risk right that there's this sense in which we drove ourselves all the way to the edge of one thing and it kicks back you know that the what gets what is more like me mine survival oriented than I don't want to die in an atomic blast, <laughs> <laughs> but then but then you know you're lifted out of that and into these these more universal concerns. So I don't know I I know that you lead a lot of people through these encounters with themselves and with nature and I, do you do you find that 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 is, is sort of a template that you see in the development of every of, of people that you encounter this. It just seems that there's an interesting sort of relationship going on there. Wow. 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 Yeah, there's a, a lot of things there in what you just said. But I had never heard the teepee uh, comparison and the, the Maslow uh, hierarchy of needs before. But it makes absolute complete sense. And so, you know, the kind of the way that I look at at the um, trajectory from that massive, ostensibly political demonstration that was really, in my view, uh, a spiritual statement um, by, you know, the vast majority of people who were who were attending. Like, in other words, not just we want peace, but we will be peace. So we're not Peace is not something off there in the future, but we're going to actually act like what we want. And I think that, you know, in my short life, that was just that in itself was kind of a kind of a mind blow. 
Um, and so what I was, you know, what I was shown very clearly is how our personal consciousness is is directly related to the collective. And I, you know, I say that because fast forward 20 years later, I am consistently exposed to native teachings, both in this country and in Siberia, for, let's say, from 1998 to the present, um, 1997 to the present, I have seen, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how we're all indigenous to land if we go back far enough in our ancestry, and that we have a blueprint for existence, uh, of a balanced existence with nature. And, and, you know, all of that would sound so kind of conceptual and intellectual and, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, there's just another cool-ass idea. But I guess what I would like to you say it, like underline and emphasize is that when people are consistently feeling that in their bones and they're just like, oh my God, you know, I guess I never realized my, not just my oneness on a temporary basis, but my oneness with all of my ancestry and with the planet in some kind of where there's continuity and the, my favorite word in what you you said was belonging that when people feel like they really belong belong to each other and to the earth and to the greater cosmos that's the game changer right there everything shifts on a dime with that understanding so was it in that rally in that protest that you experienced that kind of belong was that like the sort of wake up moment for your sense of belonging or where di where did it come i never thought about it before until you asked that i mean i think belonging and true connection go hand in hand but i felt um yeah i mean i guess you could say i felt like I belong to the earth and cosmos and spirit and to one another and to love. And that um, what was so funny, Michael, is, you know, I know that you have you you have guests and you do, you know, a, a bit of exploration of, of psychedelics. So I had done, you know, I had done maybe a half a dozen to a dozen trips in my life up to up to that point. And I didn't take a thing. And it was like, oh, my God, the uh, mystical experience doesn't need to be stimulated by a plant ally or a chemical concoction. I mean, and it's nothing wrong with the plant allies and the chemical concoctions. It's just that, whoa, mystical, mystical experience comes with our, as, a, as a birthright if we're open to it or grace is there for us. You know, I, I'm going to take this into kind of a weird place because the pestering or troubling thought that I have which I think in large part comes out of a passage I read in William Irwin Thompson's book, The American Replacement of Nature, where he was talking about the influence of television on the American political process. And he was and about how 
around the time that the TV really penetrated American homes that the the politics in this country shifted from being a discussion of the issues to a discussion of the candidates because we could see that like just before you and I got on this call we were talking about what a difference it makes in the rapport to be able to see somebody over the the video call even though these videos aren't aren't shared through the podcast channel and you know I spend a lot of time talking to people about the importance of humanizing a a brand right if you're going to communicate online you know the t- twitter says that videos on twitter that start with a face are something you know like <laughs> 10 times more it's some insane number it's more effective because we're tuned to that kind of community to that sense of participation but the point with bill thompson's piece in american replacement of nature was that this doesn't work the way that it's supposed to in an electronic civilization because uh we we end up focusing on the sometimes on the on the wrong stuff, and we seek that sense of participation and and personal intimacy. We need it so badly that people have found ways to give it to us, basically to 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 manipulate that, to exploit that that sense. And so you get stuff like, I mean, well, really, like any kind of fascist rally or demonstration is a great example of this. It's like these. These are people that have been, in, in almost any case, you look through history, and fascism arises at this moment where it's as a populist movement to like give people a sense of belonging in something <laughs> greater than themselves, you know, to give them a sense that they can make a difference, that they're no longer disenfranchised by this system. But, and it's, of course, pr- like leading them into the slaughterhouse, right? And you see this, it seems so obvious to the people I know that this is, what's going on in America with the Trump thing. And so the sort of punchline here is how do you differentiate that kind of pathological ecstatic participation in something greater from the inside? How do you differentiate that from something healthy and restorative and, and, and good? Like, how do you, how do you know when you're getting played or, what ways can we start looking at our belongingness as a drive, just like hunger that, that may be like, you, you can't serve it junk food. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, f- fascism is junk food. And it's sort of like, you know, if you, you know, <laughs> I, I think that what you're asking is is very profound, and I, in the sense that I never quite looked at it that way. And my first impulse was that fascism is fear-based, other-based. It's me against you. It's us against them. It is about you know, it, in a sense, it's our way or the highway, and everything that I believe we're you and I and your audience are fundamentally about is a, of a of a inclusive greater than love not just i don't just love you because of your ideology you know i love you because of who you are and your embeddedness in the natural world i mean you know you never hear hitler talking about nature at least i haven't you know i haven't you know heard that heard that yet and, you know, another thing as a Jew, I, you know, you said 
something about the slaughterhouse and I was thinking, yeah, it's like everybody we don't like is, uh, you know, is basically we we want them in this in the slaughterhouse. So, you know, it's funny, your your question provoked a very visceral response in me. And I, and I was actually, as I was listening to your question, I was thinking, I'm so glad that he wanted to bring politics up because I am watching what's going on in this country like I have never watched it before. I have, I'm watching, you know, I'm watching and studying the news and develop, and, de- and developments. And I'll say parenthetically, I've been to Russia 42 times. I speak the language and they have a they have a form of fascism there. It's an autocracy. And, you know, I know that firsthand. And it's not something, be, you know, I'm, it's always like a Democrat and a liberal and, and even socialist, God forbid, growing up. And so I was always very... Um, shall I say, I I would always say beware of red baiting and beware of Soviet and Russian bashing. And it's like, no, those people are fantastic people and their land is fantastic and their culture is fantastic. And unfortunately, Michael, for a thousand years, they seem to, you know, they seem to thrive on despotism. So I've gone off on a little tangent here, but the tangent is because democracy and mystical experience and the big view are all really, really interlinked. And and I I think my concluding thought is just that there's a lot of people who are spiritually inclined that just sort of think that we're going to like meditate our way out of this and it's like i don't i'm sorry man you got to vote and you got to be involved in the process um you know it doesn't mean you have to like go crazy just like pay attention yeah well you know uh sean hargens who was on the show i think episode 60 has this this great thing in his organizational development coaching where he talks about measurement itself being transformative and I think that there may be when you say like, don't just meditate for God's sake, pay attention. You know, there's like there's there's uh, kind of a, a beautiful paradox in that, that um, you, yeah, the doing and the non doing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you actually about your your 42 trips to Russia, because um, I, I take it that that was to commune with Siberian shamans. Well, so the, the, you you've just asked the connecting thread between that that demonstration in 1982 and the shamanic work that I'm now. That's my work front and center, and you know the connection is is that within a year of that experience, I was invited to go to the Soviet Union on a citizen diplomacy trip and. So the you know the, the 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 Cold War started to recede because of the Gorbachev, um, you know the the thaw and so forth. And then we've made all these wonderful friends over there who, you know, realized okay, it looks as though 
we're going to avoid incinerating ourselves, but what do we do with all these great connections that we've made? And then we said, oh, wait a minute, there's actually a World War III that's going on, and it's, you know, it's kind of ecocide on planet Earth. Uh, you know, it's a slow, 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 slow nuclear war kind of thing. And um, let's work on that together. And so... I started a group called Sacred Earth Network, and we raised money to provide internet access way back in the late 80s and early 90s when nobody even had heard of email and stuff like that. And so from that moment, <laughs> depth needed to come into the equation for me about how, how, are, you, how are we going to make a difference on environmental issues. And that's when I kept you know, it was like whispering in the ear, go indigenous, go indigenous, find out about your roots, find out about our roots. And and so the native Siberians is essentially, this is making a very long story short, the native Siberians in the whatever that was in the late 90s, essentially said, we want to know what the American, the Native American experience is with conquistadores and how they have dealt with 500 years of oppression and conquest. And, you know, we think they're pretty kick-ass warriors, and we want to we learn from them. And so that kicked off the Native Siberian, uh, Native American exchange, um, which I'm probably, of, maybe of all the things I've done, I'm, I think I'm, I might be most proud of that. Um, and so the last part of this is, is that Michael, I got a front row seat to shamanic teachings, you know, to this white guy on both continents, which um, was kind of a remarkable reward for me. So what is that piece of it like for you? Because I think there's probably two people in the audience that are listening to this that are thinking you got a white guy to talk about native americans on the show why didn't you just get native americans and, <laughs> and uh you know it's like well i've reached out and i continue to to invite that but I, you know there is this kind of delicate area right now right which is yeah around what it you know what it means what are the preconditions for you to even be sitting in that space and uh to be you know to participating in that way and i think that that's a big piece of this right because like obviously we're going to to unearth a huge volume of wounds and identity calcitrant you know stuck shadow material uh in this moment historically like that's a big piece of what's going on right now is 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 clearing the board for a, a real sort of eye-to-eye -eye thing. Um, you've walked down that road slightly ahead of me. Uh, so what, you know, what were your practices for right relations in that space? What was your experience of uh, being included or excluded from different parts of that process and the rightness or wrongness of that? Yeah. That question and that discussion I hope we get to speak again because I don't know how much time we have, but 
it's such a, a treasure, a, tr- a treasure, a mother load. It's a mother load of really, really important, um, yeah, different feeds uh, of uh, so many different rivers, uh, tributaries that need that need real exploration. Just like you know, I looked at your Facebook page or something. It was there was some post about the DMT molecule and about you know about entities and of like really feeling extraterrestrial intelligence and it's it's like there's just so much cool stuff about what you just asked and i mean the short version is that my elders both over there and over over here they basically said we're the five-fingered ones we human beings generally speaking we're you know white yellow red and black and if we don't come together as one you know we're going to destroy ourselves that unity is the most important thing and they went on to say that native teachings are the core heart teachings of humanity and so what they told me on and on and on again is if you're going to do this do it right don't exploit it teach what you learn well in a in a good way and you know respect your elders which is not just your native elders but your you know your 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 animals and your plants and your stone beings which are all far older than the fledgling humanity. So I I think what I'm emphasizing here is that, yes, the deep wound that is born out of domination, in a sense, we all experience and we all have this pain body, to use Eckhart Tolle's word. We all have, so it's going to take generations and generations to unpack this. But if we have a kind of baseline understanding about what our intention is as far as that belonging to Mother Earth, belonging to Father Sky, belonging to each other, if we just kind of use that as like, this is the, I, I was thinking, this is, this is sort of the kind of a rope as we climb up this mountain together that, you know, we're going to want to go different ways, but that's our, that's our, that's our rope that we're not going to let go of as we climb this thing up together. So the, the reason I'm sort of going on a little bit here is because your question is so fascinating and so complex and there's so many different angles to it, but I just, you know, that's the first thing that sort of jumps out at me. Mm. Let me, let me drill in a little bit. That's such a bad phrase for this. God. Yeah, let, me, let me frack this conversation a little let more. Yes, the, the, you know, inherited native lands of our language. Let me, you know, mine it for more precious ideas. No, um, let's, uh, I, but I am curious to explore in greater detail or resolution um, the the piece about what it took. It sounds to me like that you were lucky enough to be working with people who were again, to, to call on Bill Thompson's sort of framing of this cosmopolitans in the sense that they were cosmic citizens and that that cosmic citizenship is what is lacking in so much of these conversations, whether it's about 
our set, our relationship to the you know non-human parts of nature or whether it's about identity politics within the human world that both of them seem to be these conversations are symptoms of the fact that we no longer build these archaeoastronomical edifices you know the the age of me- megalithic calendars where you know everything that we made was a microcosmic map of the whole as we understood it and we knew it fit you know we knew that if you're in this room of the house this room is associated with the head of the being so that's like the throne room of the castle and then you move down here and that's the lungs so that's where your you know grief work is processed or whatever and it was all of a piece and it sounds to me like and this is all sort of just the run-up to this but it sounds to me like you are with people who understood it in that way. And so therefore the conditions of your participation were a little bit more about your respect than your, your other traits. Uh, (laughs) I'm curious, uh, what were the actual conditions and like what it, what did it take from you to participate in the process in the way that you did and to bridge these people in the way that you did? Well, before I I attempt to answer that, you know, I want the people who are listening to this saying that I was practically jumping up and down with what you were just saying, and my thumb was up, and I actually haven't heard it said that well before about, you know, the... Yeah, in fact, this weekend, I was just in Cleveland leading a a workshop, and I, I was like... To reclaim our power is to reclaim ourselves as cosmic beings, not just earthlings, that that it's that big and that, you know, it, it, you were, you know, when you were talking about having a, let's just call it a, a primordial or ancient indigenous map as in native to land and cosmos where you understand that. Over here, we're in this room, and and over here, we're in another room, and it's all part of this incredibly large, mysterious scheme, theme scheme that is uh, schema that is is unfolding before our eyes because we're paying attention to nature, not TV. To go back to what you were saying before. So anyway, I just want to really, you know, I want to just appreciate how well that was said. And, you know, and say something kind of very, how would I say, like, simple, which is, I've been very fortunate in my life to gravitate to really heart-centered people who, it's, I mean, when I think about it, it's a kind of vibrational thing of just towards people of a certain vibration who have a certain outlook. And so, you know, it's not that I didn't get rejected or that people weren't angry with me at times or ha- or copped an attitude because of what I was doing but the but but largely I have felt embraced by both of those cultures as being a bridge and you know of of serving a a bridge building function and that so in a very simple simple way I I can just say like I feel like I know how to love people and I know how to receive love and that that is the currency that gets the job done. I like that. You know, it's there's a, 
a strand here that I would be remiss for not raising, which is when I was talking to John David Ebert in episode 65, he was talking about the circumpolar shamanic traditions, you know, and how so much of, you know, and that in a sense, you were basically forming the cultural version of the Aleutian land bridge that existed (laughs) there for a while. And, you know, allowed for the the you know transmigration of people from Asia and North America, and uh, also you know lions and other stuff, uh, and um, that you know John was saying that he felt uh, as we confront global warming and and as we move into the decline of the global capitalist technocracy and the emergence of, you know, some weirder, more nuanced, sophisticated, paradoxical thing that he, he thought that there would be a cultural retrieval of a nature mysticism under the Northern lights, you know, like as all of this polar terrain opens back up again to human habitability, (laughs) as the climate changes. And as we, uh, sort of escape the equator, you know, the lower latitudes and we move up and then we, you know, we, we form a sort of polar civilization that part of that, which seems supported by, uh, you know, the, the revival of magic in electronic culture, the rededication of our attention to, I mean, all sorts of magical fictional tropes, but also the you know indigenous practices and pre-modern ways of knowing and that these things are coming back for an adaptive reason that they offer us some sort of fitness like you said you know it's these a lot of this stuff is to do with the heart and there's a there's a sort of a an obvious evolutionary benefit to not leaving that piece out right (laughs) Um, so i don't know i mean when you look forward i guess into you know how these traditions are reintegrated and what our world looks like uh, upon their reintegration. I'm curious to hear you imagine into that space. You've been holding this vision for a while now, I imagine. Well, I would say I was an amateur futurist and then I gave up because there were way too many possibilities and I was just (laughs) wasting my time getting afraid of imagining you know, you know, I'd read this one, I'd read that one, I'd think this and so forth. So what I feel like I've learned is that since I get to imagine anything I want, I I can imagine, Michael, that those primordial shamanic teachings, which are built into the fabric of nature, they reveal themselves more and more and more as we evolve under probably great, great stress. So the idea of, you know, kind of a a northern migration, if you will, you know, whatever, over the span of the next thousand years, I can imagine that (laughs) heart-based nature practices will be very adaptive indeed, and that That I mean, the most exciting thing about what you're alluding to is that our understanding of ourselves, 
our understanding, our perception of who we are, both individually and collectively, is likely to go through an absolutely profound metamorphosis so that we don't even recognize ourselves from those fear-based separate self creatures that we had to grow out of. You know, the caterpillar had to go metamorphosize into the butterfly or else. And, you know, so that's my that's how I imagine that that under great environmental pressure, we choose to live with the earth. And, you know, God knows what the hell is going to happen to get from here to there. But there's a lot of us who are like that, just that image of like a blessing of the northern lights, of just feeling the northern lights impregnate our very being so that we see in a new way it's like from your lips to god's ears may that you know may we know that in our bones what did you find to be i don't know i mean this this is sort of just like a a high dive into a pool but spending so much time uh with the siberian shamans in particular what are some of the things that you might be able to share over like a podcast format? Cause I imagine some of this stuff is, I mean, really the kind of thing that unfolds, you know, when you lead people on these ecology immersives, uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, it really takes presence and participation to really learn and grok. But what can you point to as some of the things that came over from Siberia that were not present in the American elder vocabulary or, or, or path. When you say American elder vocabulary, are you saying Native American elder? Like what's, you know, what's the substantial difference of something that I learned over there that I didn't really learn over here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So just, I want to just bracket that and remind me to just come back to it because it's something that you asked before that keeps running through my head and and the word that you used is respect and 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 that we listen to each other because we want to respect each other we respect each other and we want to listen to each other and so just having that intention of respect and listening you know we get a lot of we get a lot of mileage out of that and 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 I, and I think my point is is that in any of these endeavors, it's like what's your, you know, wh- where are you coming from? What's your what's your motivation? And uh, you know, so I think that the relative success that I feel like me and my cohorts have had with native people has been all around listening and respect and and you know you could almost say that's cliche but it's like if it's cliche i i certainly want more of it and i can't hear enough of it so anyway back to your back to your um your question siberian shamans the the real ones the authentic ones that are feeling the spirits operating through them, they get into such a state of ecstasy and wildness and uninhibitedness that they don't give a shit about cultural appropriation or about 
political correctness or about philosophy. It's just they're going into this deep trance. And I, I guess what I it's not that I haven't seen some Native Americans go there, too. But I think there's a I think that the <laughs> the Protestants and the Catholic did such a psychological number on Native Americans that unfortunately a lot of American Native Americans have there's a repression there that is in the process of being undone and there's a big healing happening in Native America right now and and I think what the Siberian shamans they're looser they're wilder they're just more laid back they're not this is totally generally speaking. There's exceptions. But it's like they don't care whether they're working with white people or, you know, for that matter, white Russians or Dutch people or Germans or Australians. It's just like, let's get down in ceremony for the earth and let's feel those original instructions. We don't care who you are. And it's not that that doesn't happen in Native America. It's just that like what you were talking about in like three or four questions ago, it's a sort of hotbed of potential uh, of conflict that needs to be worked out here on Turtle Island. And so it's so good that we have this fresh air from Siberia, if you will, to help just kind of lubricate things and loosen things up. And so that that's one of the reasons why I love when they come here. I just love it when they come here. That's actually, okay, so I didn't want this whole podcast to go without mentioning your book, Wild Earth, Wild <laughs> Soul, A Manual for an Ecstatic Culture, because what I just heard from you is that the major difference is in the continuity or the uninterrupted by Protestant colonial invasion of their ecstatic traditions specifically, and the... You know, when when I look around in the United States, with all due respect to the authors of Stealing Fire, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel, who write this book about flow states that you get into when you're so absorbed in, in, a, in a task, you know, and the, the, the extraordinary human performance that comes out of that. And it's like performance is this yellow flag, maybe not a red flag. <laughs> what you're talking about is actually the sort of appropriation, commodification, uh, mechanization of innate human capacities for ecstasis, right? Uh, and it, that concerns me that in America, primarily right now, the conversation around, and you know, you, you talk on, in your biography about participating in Vipassana retreats and, and working with Joanna Macy and Deep Ecology, so this Buddhist strain to touch that too, that in America, it's weird that mindfulness has become about Im the improving of performance in a corporate environment. And it seems to me as though right behind it on that, that conveyor belt, if you will, is ecstatic experience. And that like the final frontier of global capitalism is to figure out how to integrate... <laughs> Ecstasy 
legacy into the marketplace and like make it something that we do as consumers. So um, I would love to hear you. I would love to hear you talk about this as a guy who unironically, you know, uh, like accepts money from people to teach them about ecstasy. Um, how I mean, I, don't, I say that you know with total humor. Right on, right on. Let's you just know. put it all out there. But like, yeah. But I mean, clearly there are right and wrong ways to do this in the global yeah. market, right? So like, what are what? Where are we going in the healthiest possible way? Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, and and I and I think that this conversation is a platform for some time you know, off in the future when it works for both of us to, you know, discuss essentially what the book is about and the people who are going to this 10-day Wild Earth Intensive, which is what the book is, is, is using as a kind of classroom environment, as a, as a basis for talking about remembering indigenous culture. But, but um, it's what I love talking about the most, and I don't know how much time we have, but I want to do it justice. So, justice. you know, relatively speaking. But let me just go back and ask you is, what is the key thing that you're wanting to, you know, to address with that question? Because I'm happy to talk about the book and my work and so forth, but it's, it might be that you want to talk about how to absorb capitalism so it doesn't absorb us that might be part of the question i i think in general for me the the burning curiosity is around bringing back online this essential and intrinsic piece of our humanity in a setting in a context that makes it fundamentally difficult that ecstasy as a human birthright is more likely than not to be sold to us in the same way that we talked about earlier, belonging being something that's sold to us by, uh, you know, fascist autocratic types, you know, so how do we, how do we, how do we take this fallow field of the American ecstatic tradition, be it native or European and like lost in its migration across the Atlantic ocean? Because even the Anglo-Saxons had very rich ecstatic traditions when they were still people of place, you know, when they were still connected to their own e land. Exactly, so exactly. I think the proof is in the pudding, as in we can talk about stuff till we're, you know, what is it, red in the face, blue in the face, that there's a place for intellectual and conceptual analysis and exploration which can serve as a kind of container to move forward. But ultimately, it is in those, in a sense, my answer would be the belonging and ecstasy become the answer that our creativity comes out of that belonging and ecstasy, that what we need to know is revealed to us in those states. So I, you know, in a sense, it's like, it's going to be a little bit different for everyone and that everything is for sale society that we live in. It's that's a that's a hard nut to crack because we've you know, in a sense, we all 
we all need money. Dollars uh, and and their likeness are the currency that you know that. Yeah, it's funny. I mentioned love is currency before, and so it's like the bottom line currency of a global capitalist system is the dollar, and so coming into some kind of right relationship with that because we've learned enough about ecstasy and belonging and connection and nature that it stops being the, how would I say, a scarcity model. Like, I have more dollars. I got to have more dollars. I can never have enough dollars because I need to need those dollars to buy me security. But if I'm feeling secure because I'm a cosmic being, then those dollars don't have that same angst to them. They have a proper place in our relationships. And I think that what I love about this whole conversation is is it's a it's an invitation for us all to experience ecstasy and belonging in a whole variety of ways, like through ecstatic dance and breath work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and psychedelics, so that we're just not so in that tight and narrow place anymore. And it's only going to, to me, it's just going to spread from one person to the next to the next. And so where I love that thing about meditation, where meditation is kind of like this tight ass way that we're just kind of learn to be more attentive at the workplace. And therefore, we can produce more stuff. It's like, give me a break. But the but the, the ecstasy is what will blow away that kind of narrow, that that prison. It's a prison. You just reminded me, since we started this with your sober mystical experience of participating <laughs> in the nu- anti-nuclear rally, during Venus's transit of the sun in June 2012, when you could actually see it, like, across the surface of the sun like a Marilyn Monroe's beauty mark kind of Uh, (laughs) I was driving west from Kansas to Colorado on I-70 my friend Kaylee was asleep in the passenger seat next to me and I was watching the sunset and I saw Venus cross it and in that moment I had what later I would understand to be what would have been called sort of like a kundalini awakening Mm. I was just sitting driving the car thankfully on a straight open empty road and suddenly my spine just like filled with energy and 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 you know blissful energy and i had this image occur to me a legit spontaneous mystical vision of this same experience happening to millions of people all over the world and it being the moment of the reclamation of our own sovereignty as beings because we realized that we didn't have to extract pleasure from other people in order to have it for ourselves that you know to do the mathematical term is the what pareto optimization where i win <laughs> therefore you lose you know the, the trump mathematics but what this was saying was that's that's so completely wrong because ultimately the most satisfied you can be is from like an internal activation of your own potentials and so that there would be this this wildfire of people claiming their own specifically like sexual and creative power rather than trying to 
get treated by other people and that that alone would be enough to undo the whole thing and so you know like in light of that it's like oh no wonder they you know no wonder they want us thinking that uh, we need to buy sex bots or whatever to you know what you just said is the revolution, Michael. Again, I'm jumping up and down again. And yeah, in the in the, in all the things we mentioned, we forgot to talk about sex and about you know and and to, and the wild ecstasy and spiritual magic that is possible through unbridled conscious sexuality. And and so I'm down with that. And, you know, it's like more power to you, brother, and just keep it up. I was thinking, I'm glad he's younger than me because I'm, you know, it's like I feel like I'm in, you know, good hands as I as I get older that, you know, you're it's kind of like the torch of what, you know, we're talking about light here, about passing the torch of light, of ecstatic light on in a good way. And it's like, just keep doing what you're doing, man. I'm just, I'm psyched. Thank you. Isn't that, uh, just as an aside, isn't that the one definition of shaman is like the fire keeper and like the fire and the story are kind of equivalented in that space? Yeah. I mean, the first definition of shamanism, of a shaman coming, you know, from the Siberian Tungus language was to heat up. Um, and, and so, you know, there's lots of different different ways to look at it but to heat up into ecstasy and i love your kundalini experience and i just want to double down on that insight which is ultimately it's not out there it's in here and that we the more that we learn our in here direct connection to the source then we're not we're a lot less likely to exploit and use other people for anything because we're not trying to get anything from out there. You know, we can ask for love, but we don't demand it because we're feeling it. Mm. So before I ask you the final question, um, it's, <laughs> it's obvious that we've opened a lot of possible conversation here and people may want to follow up with you so like where would you send people to learn more to stay in touch if you're open to that i'm very open to it i'd say billpfeiffer.org as a website and uh friend me on facebook at bill pfeiffer aka sky otter and that that will separate me from other bill pfeiffers out there i'd say i invite anybody who has been you know, whatever, who, who who feels good about what we've been talking about, that they, they can get in contact with me. And, uh, and yeah, you get my book, look online, and we'll go from there. That sounds good, yeah. So I'd like to end these by inviting the guest, that's you, to imagine forward into the unborn audience and their experience in a future of indeterminate distance from ours. And I, and I think this, this is actually, this came to me out of actually being in, in sweat lodge once and having this palpable experience of feeling ancestors in the sweat lodge out, out of an ecstatic experience that maybe this, you could say the show was inspired by that in the sense that, Oh, well 
you know, maybe we can feel our, our distant descendants in the space. So if you feel that, you know, if you indulge the simultaneity of past, present and future, then you're in a conversation with these people. What would you say to them and what would you ask? Well, just the easiest way that that I would approach that is that I speak for the descendants and I'm just I'm in this future time and I am immensely grateful. It actually kind of brings tears to my eyes. Like I'm immensely grateful for the struggle and the 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 tenacity and the inspiration and the um the uncompromising search for truth that you went through in the 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd century, where you just put the freaking pedal down to the floor because you knew that if you didn't do that, you know, I heard somebody say, accelerate to survive. You know, you push that, you push that pedal to the metal and you enabled me and my children to thrive here on planet earth like you can't believe how beautiful it is from this vantage point how magical how your time is completely quaint it looks like it was a nightmare that you were willing to go through and feel so you could get to the other side and i'm just I'm in eternal gratitude for how you how you got through those times and 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 the perseverance that it must have taken. That's beautiful. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with such other great programs as the Astral Hustle, Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity, It's All Happening, and many others. I highly recommend you go to their website, MindPod Network, and check us out. Thanks again for listening, and have a great eon. <laughs>